Well, today, as we continue in our journey that we just started here in the book of Joshua, we continue in our challenge to be strong and courageous in our faith. We're there in Joshua chapter 1. So please turn in your Bibles to the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. And follow along as I read. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the land of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go in to take possession of the land that your Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribes of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying that the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land. That Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and self-possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Father, now what a privilege we just had to read what your Holy Spirit has given to us in this inspired, inerrant word of God. Lord, it is these words, these powerful words of the Spirit written for us that we ask you now to come alive to us, 
to challenge us and to change us, to convict us, so that we might better leave this building more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. One of the most trying moments in history is when a nation's leader dies. The history of the world is strewn with wars and military coups and political revenge and all sorts of evil as divergent forces vie for power. I can remember my history teacher in high school, Mr. Abramowitz. Yes, the very same man, my cross-country coach, that God used to bring me to Christ. I can remember him saying that one of the greatest moments in American history is often totally overlooked. It's almost never mentioned as a great moment in American history. I can remember when he said that, it totally piqued my attention. So that years later here now, I can remember what he said. He said one of the greatest moments in American history was when George Washington, after two terms as president, willingly and peacefully laid down the authority and the power of the presidency for another to take it up. You see, this gentle transfer of power is a rare thing. And it was especially rare up to that point. Many people wanted George Washington to stay in power. But he held strong to his ideals and to his principles. And he set a precedent that left an indelible mark that continues to this day on how we transfer the power and authority of the president from one past president to a new president. The book of Joshua starts with just such a moment in history of the nation of Israel. The first and the great national leader, Moses, has died. He's the one. He's the one that stood up to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He's the one that led them out of slavery from Egypt. He's the one who received the law directly from God, the very teachings of God to build and guide and direct the nation. From God, through Moses, came the when, the where, and the how that God wanted to be worshipped. All of their civil life laws, all of their religious laws came from God through Moses. It's impossible for us to fully grasp the level of authority, power, prestige that Moses held. Two generations of Israelites had looked to Moses as their leader. The generation that left Egypt, and now 40 years later, their children, the generation that's on the verge of entering the promised land. And just now, as the rubber meets the road, just now as the promise of God for the long-awaited promised land for his people has arrived. Just now, just now, right over there on the other side of the Jordan River, the promised land, just now, their leader has died. And there's a new leader. The great Moses has died. Now what's going to happen? Yet see, here's the thing we know about God's people. God is always the leader of God's people. God is always the leader of his people. I'm sure there were questions and worries and concerns in the camp. But not with God. He knew exactly what he was doing. It is crystal clear 
that God is orchestrating all of these events. In Deuteronomy 31, 14 and 15, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. God is the ruler of his people. God is the one transferring leadership from Moses to Joshua. This was so important for the people of Israel to know during this transition from their great leader Moses. God's leadership gave them great assurance. But the truth that God is the real leader of his nation was written down here. Here in the scripture, under the the authority and the direction of the Holy Spirit, it was written as a reminder, as an important reminder for all future generations of Jewish people to read and to remember. See, one of the main purposes for the writing of the book of Joshua was to assure and reassure Israel that throughout their history, God is the ultimate ruler. He's the ultimate king of his people. Joshua was inspired by the Holy Spirit to remind the people that God is the ruler of his people at all times. There is never a time when God is not the king. There is never a time when God is not reigning and ruling as a sovereign, as the king. Joshua 1, 2 through 9 is a quote from God. God himself is doing the talking. God himself is doing the directing. God himself is now appointing a new leader. The veil is lifted and we see the sovereign hand of God at work. That, however, is not always the case. See, sometimes in life, the clouds of fear creep in. Sometimes in our lives, worry and doubt blur our vision. Sometimes we lose a job unexpectedly. Sometimes we get a surprise health diagnosis. Sometimes addiction strikes within our family. Sometimes a spouse defies their wedding vows. Sometimes an adult child loses their way. And the sovereign hand of God is hard to see. But it's precisely at those moments where he might seem most distant that we must go to God's word and tell ourselves the truth. It's precisely at those moments when we must remember who God really is. He's where he always is, reigning as our king, our sovereign, our ruler. He's who he always is, loving and caring and forgiving and convicting. The book of Joshua was written to reassure the nation of Israel that God knows what he's doing, that God's in charge. The book of Joshua was written for us, to reassure us that God knows what he's doing, that God is in charge. Verse 1 told us the reason for God commissioning Joshua. Moses, the great leader, has died. Now in verses 2 through 4, God tells us the plan for Joshua of the commission. Arise, go over the Jordan, you and all the people, 
take possession of the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Now, there's a couple interesting points to this plan. First, if God is giving the people the land, then it must be his land. See, the only way a person can give something to somebody else is if it's theirs to give. For example, I can't go up to Jeff and say, Hey, Jeff, I'm giving you Gene's truck. I can't do that. It's not mine to give. I can't give it away. See, the land is God's, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. It's actually a very important point. Because if God owns the land, if the land is his, then not only does he get to say who's going to live there, he also gets to set the parameters on how the land is going to be used. He also gets to say how you're supposed to live while you're on his land. See, not only this truth is a fundamental basis for kicking out the Canaanites out of the land, but it also sets the condition for Israel to not just occupy the land, but to stay in the land. Because we know what happens, right? Eventually, we know in the history of Israel that God kicks the Israelites out of the land because they have not lived up to their responsibilities on how they were supposed to live in the land. It's God's land. The Israelites aren't taking it. It is being given to them by God. Now, a second interesting thing to notice is that in this plan, it lacks, you know, almost completely of the details. Arise, you and all the people, go over the Jordan, enter the land. Arise, right? Arise. How many people were there for Joshua to arise and to get ready to enter the promised land. If you look over in Numbers 26.51, it concludes a long list of the men, 20 and over, of the 11 tribes, not counting the tribes of Levi, of the 11 tribes of men, 20 and over, there were 601,730 men. So when you add in the women and the children and the tribe of Levi you get to a number probably over 2 million people. Arise, God says, right? It's no small order to arise 2 million people. They get them ready to go over the promised land. Where are the details? Next in the plan is we're supposed to take those 2 million people and go over the Jordan River. Take the nice, you know, new four-lane bridge that's nicely there to cross the river. There's no bridges, right? And Joshua 3.15 tells us something very important. It's springtime. It's harvest time in the land, which means what? The river is overflowing its banks. The spring rains and the, and the winter snow melts have swelled the river Jordan into a raging, powerful river. And God says, take the two million people and cross over that river. Where are the details for that? Then the plan says, enter the land. Now, it just so happens there's a bunch of people already in the land that doesn't really want two million people to come into their land. There are fortified, walled cities. There are armies, skilled, trained, and well-equipped. There's no welcome wagon on the other side of the Jordan waiting for them to come. So God gave Joshua the plan, but not the details. 
It took Joshua to be strong and courageous and to, by faith, obey God and to trust, and that as he obeyed, God would continue to lead, and we'll see that. You know, the same is true for me. It's probably the same for you, that that's exactly how God leads in our life. God gives the plan, but not the details. He tells us what he wants, how we're supposed to obey him in small things and in big things through his word and through the spirit using his word. But so often those plans don't include the details. It's our challenge to respond just like Joshua did. We're to be strong and courageous and to, by faith, obey God and then to trust that as we obey him, he will continue to lead us and reveal his plan to us. See, our relationship with God is moment by moment. Our relationship with God is hour by hour, day by day. Obedience is always current. Obedience is always now. You can't be obedient in your past because that's the past. You can't be obedient in the future until the future becomes now. Our relationship with God is always current. It's always in the process of now. It's always continuing in the present. It's always now. Michael Card, back in the 80s, had a song that came to mind. Chorus of it said, Lord, I long to see your presence in reality, but I don't know how. Let me know you in the now. What a great prayer. Let me know you in the now. Where's your relationship with Christ right now? Is it in the now? Is it something that's real right now? Or is it stuck in the past? Is it dead, past, old, barely alive? Or is it waiting for some magical moment in the future? Oh, when this happens, then I'm going to start living for Jesus. See, our relationship with Jesus Christ is in the now, in the present moment. It's not about some decision we've made in the past. It's not about some future plan we have for the future. What God wants is you. Think about this. What God wants is you right now, today, this moment, this hour. He wants to love you. And he wants you to love him. He wants to serve you. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to walk by faith, living out obedience to him right now. Are you right now pursuing that ever-growing, ever-maturing relationship with God? Is it the aim of your heart? Is it the priority of your life? To right now, day by day, hour by hour, live by faith and obedience and to love him? Well, then God gives Joshua the challenge of his commission. Look at verses 7 and 8. Such great verses. Verses to memorize. (coughs) The Lord says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have great success. Great, wonderful verses 
Joshua, do you want to successfully lead these people into the promised land that I am giving to them? Then be careful to obey my word. How was he supposed to obey it? By not turning to the left or to right, but by staying on the straight, narrow path of God's truth. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. 2 Kings 22.2. My favorite kings, King Josiah. It says of him, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. How often are we lured from some selfishness that's within us to wander off the path of obedience? How often do we step off the straight and narrow to go after some enticement of this world? God said to Joshua, and he's saying to us, if you want to know good success, real success, success in God's eyes, in God's evaluation, the only evaluation that really counts, then be careful to obey my word. But success and obedience to the word requires something, right? It requires us to know God's word. That's what verse 8 is all about. Joshua, do you want to successfully lead the people into the land that I'm giving to them? Then meditate on my word. Know my word. The Hebrew word meditate in verse 8 is a very colorful word. It's an onomatopoetic word. An onomatopoetic word is a word that sounds like its meaning. For example... The word splash sounds like what it means. So imagine you're on a pond and you you throw a rock into the pond and what do you hear? Splash. The onomatopoetic word translated meditate in Hebrew is the word hagah. Now typically when we think of the word meditate, what often do we think of? Some quiet reflection So we might have the idea that this word means we're just supposed to quietly reflect day and night on God's word, which of course is a wonderful thing. But the original idea behind the word Hagah is something totally different than that. Hagah is an onomatopoeia for what a hungry lion says when it's seeking food. Imagine a lion in your mind as you hear him growl as he passionately and even desperately seeks after something to eat. Isaiah 31.4 uses this word hagah. Listen, it says, For thus the Lord God said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. The word growl, to growl over the prey, is that word hagah is the word meditate. Think about this now. As a lion growls over his prey, so we are to meditate on God's word. Joshua 1.8 is about focusing on God's word, not in some kind of quiet reflection. It's about hunger. It's about passion. It's about getting into God's word day and night. It's not snacking on God's word. It's like, hovering over it like a starving lion. You growl for God's word like a lion growls for its prey. 
We're supposed to devour it. It's our sustenance. It's the food for our soul. What an image. Do we haga over God's word? Do we growl over it like a hungry lion? God said to Joshua that if you haga over my word, you'll have success. Now, many people have success in this world, right? Amazing cars and trendy clothes and great house and, you know, vacation house and, and you know, a boat and season tickets to their favorite sports teams. And there are many ways and many people who have reached earthly success and prosperity. They're going to find out someday that it means absolutely nothing. Nothing. Multiply it by anything and you know what you get? Nothing. It's going to mean nothing on that judgment day. Perhaps you've heard the joke about the rich man who made a deal with God that he could bring one suitcase with him to heaven when he died. So when he died and appeared before Peter in pearly gates, all jokes have Peter in front of the pearly gates. I don't think Peter is in front of the pearly gates, but for this joke, Peter's in front of the pearly gates. There comes the man with the suitcase. So the ever-curious Peter asked him to open the suitcase so he could see what he brought. And inside is bar after bar after bar of this pure, amazing gold. Then Peter gets this funny, you know, kind of quizzical look on his face, and he says to the man, why did you bring pavement to heaven? See, earthly success is pavement in heaven. Real success is only measured through God's evaluation. God said to Joshua, and he's saying to us, if you want to know real achievement, if you want to have real prosperity, if you want to have real success in God's eyes, in God's evaluation, the only evaluation that counts, then meditate, haga, on my word. Then be careful to obey my word. That's how one gets real, lasting success. Boy, do we need to hear that. Because this world is telling us so differently. We need to embrace that truth that the Bible is telling us today. Now folks, think about this. This conversation between God and Joshua, recorded for us in Joshua chapter 1 that we just read, probably happened sometime around 1400 BC. So that's about 3,500 years ago. And what does God tell Joshua to do? What does God say? This is success. Read and obey the word. Here we are at the beginning of the sixth book of the Bible. And God says, if you want to know spiritual success, read and obey the word. All there was for Joshua to read and study was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And what does God say to him? Read it. Study it. Obey it. That's how I'm going to guide you. That's how I'm going to direct you. That's how you will find success. Remember how last week I referenced Exodus 33.11 where it described how God met with Moses and how Joshua would linger there. It says, the, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Then Moses turned again to the camp His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. God is now telling Joshua, I met with Moses face to face. 
but I'm not going to do that with you in the same way. Now, I want to meet with you through my word, your heart engaged in my word. God had Moses write the Torah, and as soon as it was finished, God changed the primary way that he directed his people. Beloved, this is very important. Think about this with me. God is setting up a whole new pattern. Now, the first five books of the Bible are written. He says to Joshua, I want to meet with you through my word. I want to meet with my people through the written word. And as more and more of the Bible is written, God reiterates over and over and over and over and over again that he wants to lead his followers through his word. It's impossible for me to overstress this point. The written word of God is the primary way that God leads and teaches his people. And it's been that way for 3,500 years. Knowing God's word, obeying God's word, is the primary response and responsibility of a follower of God. And it's been that way for 3,500 years. God has spoken in his word and is speaking through his word right now. There's no guessing. There's no, well, I think maybe God wants. There's no speculating on his will or his person. There's no, well, I think God might be like. No, you see, God has revealed who he is. God has revealed what he wants. It's called the Bible, God's word. And for many of you, you're holding it on your lap right now. The challenge before us to read it, to study it, to devour it, to do it. If you want to know and follow Jesus Christ, As the Lord and Savior of your life, the primary way, the principal way, the essential way to do that is through the word. That has been God's pattern for 3,500 years. Now Joshua knew something. He had learned through his walk with God that success wasn't by him. Success wasn't by his power but that the battle belonged to the Lord. God is the one, the only one that can bring victory through obedience. He knew that success wasn't by mustering up his own determination and strength to be obedient. You know, if I just read and I just do these things, I can kind of manufacture with my own power. He knew better than that. So what does God do? He assures him of his divine presence with him. Joshua knows it's all about God. It's all about his presence, his plan, his power, his will. Look at verses 5 and 9. Look at the assurance God gives of his presence to Joshua. Look at the intimacy of these words. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's all about the presence of God. Joshua knew that. It was only because of God that he would find success. It's his land. It's his people. It's his word. It's his battle. All about his presence. How can Joshua be strong and courageous? Because God is with him. How can Joshua, by faith, lead these people? Because God is with them. 
How can Joshua not be dismayed at the daunting task ahead of him? Because God is with them. How can Joshua's leadership have great success? Because God is with them. God said to Joshua, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And so he says to us, folks, what could be accomplished when it's about God and his presence, his power, his plan? So then how does Joshua respond? God commissioned him, challenged him, assured him. And how does Joshua respond? Verses 10 and 11. He arises and obeys. He immediately starts to get the people ready to cross the Jordan River and to take possession of the land. And how do the people respond to Joshua, their new leader? They commit to obey him. Verses 16 and 17. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as... We obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. The title of the sermon I chose is Follow the Leader. Joshua, following the leader God in his life. And the people, following the leader Joshua, because Joshua was following the leader God. See, at a moment when there could have been incredible disunity, at a moment when things could have fallen apart in the nation. Instead, there was unity. At a moment of leadership change that could have turned into a power fight for control, for influence, instead, there was wonderful, powerful harmony. Why? Because they all had one agenda. To follow the leader God. Obey God. Their unity was in their united followership of God. Their unity was in their united desire to obey God. Another great lesson for us as a church, as we together strive to be a bold and courageous church, living by faith and obedience to Christ, we must remember that we maintain and deepen our unity with each other as we follow our leader, Jesus, unifying around him and his agenda. See, we have a commission too. Jesus has commissioned us too. Our Lord, our leader has commissioned us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 was read earlier in our service. Listen again, it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Moses' departure left Joshua as a leader of God's plan, so Christ's ascension to heaven left the church as a leader of God's plan. As Joshua was commissioned to go into the promised land, to go into Cana, so Jesus commissioned his church to take his word out of Canaan, to go into all the nations. As Joshua was commanded to cross, we are commanded to go. As Joshua went to conquer the land in God's name and power, we are to conquer people's hearts in God's name and power. As Joshua was to obey all that God had commanded him and to lead others in obedience, so we are to obey all that Christ has commanded us and to teach others to obey him. As God so promised to be with Joshua, so Jesus promised to be with us. Behold, 
I am with you always. It's all about Jesus, his plan, his agenda, his will, his glory, his word, his presence. Maybe you've heard this before about these four different types of churches and thus four different types of followers of Christ. There's the museum church. It's old, beautiful, but empty. No one goes there to worship anymore. There's no spiritual vitality. It's all about the past. Then there's the maintenance church. Its mission is to just survive, to maintain itself against the world. Their creed is called the last seven words of the church. We never did it that way before. It's on its way of becoming a museum church. Then there's the ministry church. It's pursuing genuine Christian ministry, but only to the people that are already within the church. The calendar is full, the programs are full, the staff is loving, but it lacks connection, contact with people outside of the church. It would rather stay securely on this side of the Jordan and cross over into unknown territory. Then there's the mission church. It too is pursuing genuine Christian ministry and offers full service of ministry to its own attenders and reaches out to serve its community, to win the lost. It goes outside of the church into its neighborhood. It understands that it's been given a mission to go and make disciples. What makes the difference? See, a mission church is filled with people who are strong and courageous in their faith. Their allegiance is to the word, their dependence is on God, and their mission is to go, to go into the world and to spread the gospel. So here's the challenge for us. As a church and as Christians, are you museum Christian? Is everything about your Christianity in the past? Are you a maintenance Christian? It's just all about holding on tightly to what you already have. Are you a ministry Christian doing great things for God, but perhaps you've lost sight of this lost world around us? Or are you a mission Christian serving in ministry to your fellow Christians and reaching out to win the lost? May it be for us that as we journey with Christ, may we be a mission church full of mission Christians following our Savior. Let's pray. Father, now in this hour, in this time, we've worshiped, we've interacted with your word, and we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would challenge us, you'd convict us. What part of this sermon, what part needs to apply to my life? What part do I need to change and to grow and to mature? Lord, we've not come to just hear a message. We've come to interact, to grow, to think, to have your spirit challenge us and change us. Today it is our prayer that we might be mission Christians, on task, on mission, following our leader, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.